There's an old expression, seeing is believing. In uh, 2007, the New England Patriots had a comeback win against the Atlanta Falcons. It was on February 6, 2017. It was one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. The Patriots entered the fourth quarter ahead 28-9. Oh, excuse me, behind 28-9, came back to win. And yet, while it was almost hard to comprehend, it was not the greatest comeback in sports history. That belongs to the 2004 Red Sox, who in October of 2004 were down three games to zero against the New York Yankees and entered the ninth inning down four to three. They had three outs left. Enter Mariano Rivera. Probably, possibly, the greatest closer in Major League Baseball history. Three outs away from the 86-year curse of Boston Red Sox championships continuing, and yet they came back to win that game. Some of you remember the sequence. I'm not going to have you relive it. They came back to win that game in the 12th inning. Two-run home run by David Ortiz. A little bit of remembrance. Then they went on to win game five, six, and seven. Went on to win the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals. Four games straight. Wonderful. Um, it's one of those sporting events that's almost too good to be true for a Red Sox fan and too bad to be true for a Yankees fan. <laughs> Sorry. Yet it's in, the, it's in the books. It's in the history books. You can read about it. You can go back and look at highlights. You can probably find a documentary or ten on it. Millions of people saw it. There are far more significant matters in which seeing is not always believing. Seeing is believing. It's an expression that we've heard. And yet seeing is not always believing. As we get our minds back into the Gospel of John, Pastor uh, Jeff led us there last week, and I want to again remind us about the substance of the Gospel of John. There's a stated purpose to the Gospel of John in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. None of us were there to see the signs that Jesus worked in the Gospel of John. And yet, His works have been recorded for us, and God has enabled us to see and believe. Even though our physical eyes did not see, He has opened the eyes of our understanding to see the truthfulness of the works, the divine works of Jesus, and He has brought us to life. But many who actually saw the signs with their physical eyes remained blind to who He really is. John has already declared to us in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the Creator who took on flesh, showing grace and truth, 
and bringing light and life. He's declared to us that Jesus is the bread that satisfies and that Jesus is the water that springs up unto everlasting life. He's declared to us that Jesus is the light of the world, giving sight to the blind like us. He is the door into the sheepfold. And He is the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. Jesus' sheep hear His voice. He knows them and they follow Him. The Good Shepherd speaks. His sheep hear His voice and believe. And yet, those who are not His sheep are deafened to the voice of the Good Shepherd and their eyes are blind to His saving works. And we see this illustrated at the end of John chapter 10. That not only are there sheep that are not of His sheepfold, They don't hear His voice. They're deafened to His voice. There are also people who are blinded to who He is. And because of that blindness, they blaspheme Him in disbelief. Let's take a look, please, at John chapter 10, verses 31 to 33 to start. John chapter 10, starting in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The first element we want to notice this morning is this concept of spiritual blindness. These religious leaders are ready to execute Jesus by stoning Because he proclaimed himself to be in union with the Father. Jesus in verse 21 proclaims that he has shown them many good works. These are beautiful works. The Greek term kalos can mean beautiful. I've shown you many beautiful works from the Father. I've shown you time after time, sign after sign that my works are from him. And while they saw with their physical eyes, these beautiful works, they continued to reject. They rejected the reality that these beautiful divine works were pointing to. Of importance in this context is the most recent sign that Jesus had performed, at least in the context of the Gospel of John, and that is the healing of the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. The Pharisees and religious leaders were more concerned about their perceived view that Jesus violated the Sabbath, more concerned about that, than that a man who was many years blind now sees. That is the definition of misguided. To be concerned about their perception of what was supposed to be done on the Sabbath day over against someone's wellness 
It's an, it's an amazing contrast. This healing had its proper outcome because the man believed and the leader's blindness was demonstrated. In John 9 and verse 38, the man said, Lord, I believe. That was exactly what that sign was intended to bring forth. It was for the glory of God that Jesus healed him. For his goodness, his wellness, that he could see, but more importantly, that he would truly see. Not just in this life, but seeing forever. Not only was this man's sight restored physically, and his spiritual sight given for the first time and unendingly, the blindness of the spiritual leaders was very well demonstrated as the chapter comes to its conclusion, Jesus tells them, you think you see, and because you say we see, your guilt remains. Because you think you see clearly the truth, and yet you remain in blindness, because you think you see, you actually have guilt remaining, your sin remains. Think about it this way. These insisted that they saw clearly who Jesus was. But Jesus tells them, because of that, their guilt and their sin remains. If they would have admitted that they needed help seeing, Jesus would have helped them to see, just as he did this man. And I'd say, likewise, if you and I, if you and I will admit that we need help from God seeing who He really is and seeing who Jesus really is, He will in fact help us to see. We need Him. We need Him for the very most basic part of the Christian life. The most basic component of the Christian life is believing God. And we need God for that. We need Him to help us see. It's like the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. They thought that they were rich and prospered and in need of nothing. Jesus said, you don't even know that you're wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And He bids them, He invites them to find out who He really is. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you can be truly spiritually rich. And white garments so that you may be clothed, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He essentially tells them, you have these spiritual needs. You think you're fine. Everything's good spiritually. You think everything's okay. But if you would just admit that you need something, I will supply it in abundance. And when He supplies it, He supplies it not just temporally. He supplies it eternally. In life and through eternity. It's an invitation for you and I to come to Him. To admit that we need Him. 
because of the spiritual blindness that plagued them, they blasphemed the only one who could truly make them see. So we move from spiritual blindness to blasphemy confusion. Blasphemy confusion. In their blinded condition, they could not tolerate Jesus' claim in John 10.30 when he made this simple statement, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now this statement stands in sharp contrast to one of their uh, significant theological positions. Now their, their theological position comes from Deuteronomy 6.4, which states this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus' statement can be interpreted to contradict this statement of faith. However, when we understand the Hebrew word one, as it's used in Genesis chapter 2, when God took male and female, Adam and Eve, he takes these two and he makes them one. It's the same exact word. He takes two entities, male and female, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, and he makes them one. Two entities into this union. Understood this way, we start to get a little glimpse of not only the relationship between father and son, this oneness, this union, but we also get to see a, a little bit more about the triune nature of God as we consider the Holy Spirit also in the pages of Scripture being spoken of clearly as God. In the Scriptures, we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons sharing this one divine nature, Father, Son, and Spirit eternally together in union. In union. Co-equal. Co-eternal. Co-existent. They are united in nature. So everything that's true about the Father, as far as His nature, is true about the Son. And everything true about the Son is true about the Holy Spirit. True in nature. Omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Omniscient, meaning knowing everything. Omnipresent, meaning being everywhere. You go on into the holiness and righteousness and justice and faithfulness, grace and mercy, long-suffering. You list all the truths, the perfections of God. It's true of Father, Son, Spirit equally. They're one in nature. But they're also one in purpose. It's really important to understand their purposes are united. You see it in the pages of Scripture, particularly in the Gospels, and really specifically in the Gospel of John, where Jesus again and again says, it's my meat, my satisfaction, to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. You can see that union of purpose over and over. What was his ultimate purpose? He was come, he was going to live for us while demonstrating his divine nature. He was going to live for us while fully uh, fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law. He was going to live for us to accrue a record of righteousness. And then he was going to die for us, laying his life down in our place. 
the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. United in purpose. We could go on and on about this. His plans and purposes are in coordination with the Father. Here's something significant about this. This triune God, working in harmony together, tells you and me in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, one of the ways that we demonstrate our humility before God is by casting all our care upon Him, knowing that He cares for us. One of the ways that we say, God, you're God, and I'm not, is to take all those concerns that consume our minds, the things that grab our attention, that cause us anxiety or fear or frustration, take those things and cast them upon Him, Father, Son, Spirit. Triune God, working in harmony, caring for our needs. Casting all your care upon Him, knowing that He cares for you. All of your burdens, all your anxieties, there is a triune God working in harmony and He cares about the things you're facing. Today, tomorrow, and through all the days of your life. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, this eternal triune God works in harmony together. And the leaders of the Jews, these religious leaders, their purpose stood in stark contrast to the purpose of God, which is why there was constantly a rub. There were constantly run-ins between Jesus and these religious leaders because they, they had a different agenda. Their agenda was not like Jesus and His Father and the Spirit of God. They had a contrasting one. Well, much like you and I. We experience this on a regular basis, that we have competing interests. Sometimes our interests are far off of God's interests. So they pick up stones in verse 31 to stone Him. And this is not the first time. It says they picked up stones again. If you go back in the pages of the Gospel of John in chapter 5, you'll see them picking up stones when Jesus said, the Father is working and I work. When He called Himself the Son and God His Father, that was enough for them to say, you, you, you stand in opposition to us. In John chapter 7, we have the same thing. They want to arrest Him in John chapter 7 in verse 30. And then in John chapter 8, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. They took up stones to stone Him. What is I am? Yahweh. It's the self existent one the one who does not rely upon anyone or anything for his existence and jesus says i am this i am and so the the jewish leaders take up stones to stone him and we're here we are again this is no no new item for jesus to deal with they pick up stones to stone him jesus refutes their claims of his blasphemy uh, in two main ways. First, he's going to point to his many good works. Secondly, he's going to point to their own scripture to undermine their argument. So let's talk about this just for a moment. John 
chapter 10 and verse 32, he's going to point to his many good works. He says, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now it's interesting, Jesus talks about these many beautiful, kalas, good works. In verse 32, they minimize, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. So they minimize his work. At least I think so. Um, Jesus is saying, look at all this that I've done in your sight. These all were brought forth to show you that I am the Christ, the Son of God, and that I bring life to those who believe in my name, right? That's the purpose of the Gospel of John. He's doing all these many works. He says, for which of these works are you going to stone me? Well, it's not for a work. Because you're blaspheming. You're making yourself equal with God. So we'll get back to that works conversation in verses 37 and 38 where Jesus brings it up again. He then points them to their own scriptures in verses 34 and 35. Listen to what he says. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. All right, so we're not going to get into the weeds. Let me try to help you understand this citation. Jesus cites Psalm 82. And in this, in Psalm 82, God charges unjust judges. So the judges of the world, because they were judging unjustly, God charges them as guilty. And in the process of that argument, He, God, calls them small g gods. Little gods. You little gods. You little judges of the earth. You're not judging clearly, but judgment will come. You, like the rest of creation, will experience what happens to created things. They come and they go. You too, little gods, will die. If the Scriptures, which cannot be disavowed or broken, that's what he says in verse 35, can reference men as small g gods, this is Jesus' rationale, why are you religious leaders so enraged that I refer to myself as the Son of God? In your own law, The words are used this way. Why so upset about some words? Jesus does not argue in this citation for his own divinity. He's just undermining their argument. What Jesus did is not blasphemy. However, their accusation against him was in fact blasphemy. Isn't that interesting? They stand there in judgment of the creator of the world. The one who held their breath in his own hands under his own authority and they're saying, you're blasphemous. Which is the definition of blasphemy accusing and charging God. Pretty interesting scene. 
And I say, friends, don't just look at them and say, whew, what's the matter with them? There are ways in which we struggle with this very same concept. Now, Jesus isn't standing in our midst, and we're not talking directly to him. It's more like your life is going in a certain direction. And really, God, this is, this is your purpose? This can't be it. This can't be it. You really should have done it like this. The seeds of that blasphemy are within all of us. And it's only through eyes open that we start to say, God, I'm just going to let go of controlling all of these things and I'm going to let you be God and I will, I will be your child. I'll let you do what, what Father does. Lord Jesus, I'll let you do what Savior does. Spirit, I'll let you do what Comforter does and Guide does and Protector does. I'll let you do that. I'm just going to come along and I'm going to say, okay, Lord, I see you. I believe you. I'm going to trust you. I'll place myself in your hands. Jesus returns again to his mighty works as evidence of his claims to, to be in union with God. Look at verses 37 and 38. He says, If I am doing the works of my Father, excuse me, I read it wrong. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. If my works are not divine, if they don't come down from above, then don't believe me. However, if you're looking and you're seeing the works of God, divine works, beautiful works that come from heaven, if you see these divine works even though you look at me and you don't believe me, look at what the works are pointing you to. Look at the evidence. The signs were not to be exhausted themselves. The signs pointed to something greater. They were pointing us to the reality that Jesus is the sent, sanctified Son of a redeeming God. Let these works point you to this bigger reality that the Father has set me apart, sent me to redeem you. If you'll believe what the works are pointing you to, he says at the end of verse 38, you will know and you will continue to know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You will know, and you'll continue to know, that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. If, if you'll actually see what they're doing, you'll see that there's this intimate, eternal union between Father and Son. Let the signs teach you that you may know of this union. It's been previously seen in the Gospel of John that Jesus' works did impact the way people see, saw Him. I'll remind you of John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus. He said this, we know, we, the other leaders, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. With him is not in him. Right? 
but with him is better than not from him. Take a look at John chapter 9 for just a moment. In John chapter 9, the Pharisees say that Jesus cannot be from God because he violated, in their mind, the Sabbath. You can't be from God. Now, Nicodemus said, no one can do these things that, that you are doing unless God is with him. The Pharisees are like, no, 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 no. You violated the Sabbath. You can't be from God. That, that disqualifies you as being from God. But the man who was formerly blind and now sees has a different take. Look at verses 30 through 33. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never, listen to this, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Like, this guy, he's not, a, he's not one of the religious leaders, he's just a guy, Jag. He's just a guy. But he was a guy who had his eyes opened physically, and more importantly, spiritually, and he says, that man has come from God. He is doing the works of God. God doesn't listen to a person not doing his works, is essentially his take on it. But you know, Jesus is more than from God. He is God. And he's in this perfect union with God. His divine works prove this again and again. Jesus demonstrates his authority through the Gospels over disease, over demons, over sin. Do you remember the time that Jesus was in the boat with his disciples? They're going across the Sea of Galilee, and, and he's sleeping in the, you know, in the front of the, the ship, and the waves are, are just crashing, crashing, and then crashing into the boat. The boat is filling with water. Jesus is sleeping. And the, the disciples come wake him up do you not care we're perishing and jesus wakes up and he rebuked the wind and he said peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm like not only can you see him dealing with disease and demons and the, the authority to forgive sin we've got wind and waves working together to kill the disciples. And Jesus just says, peace, be still. Immediately the wind ceased. Immediately the sea was stilled. Immediately it was at rest. Power over nature. Power over everything. Jesus' authority, his Ability, his purpose, his nature is all seen over and over. His works were on display. But you know, seeing is not always believing. The most basic component of the Christian experience is faith. We need God to supply even this. The question I have for you, we've got several minutes left, so is he trustworthy? Where you struggle with your faith in seeing Him, 
Can you rely on him to open your eyes? Can you say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief? God, I see some, but I don't see it all. Can you rely on him to open your eyes? Can you say, Lord, I need you? It's easy for us to look at the disciples and say, don't you know the one who created the wind and the waves and the sea is in the boat with you? Why are you afraid? Easy for us to say that. But yet here we are in 2023, 2,000 years after Jesus laid down his life and took it up again, and here we go through some situation difficult for us, we're human. Go through a situation, we're like, God, what's up? This isn't the one I expected. This isn't the way I, I planned it. I had all these plans and purposes, and it's all turning upside down and backwards. It's, it's really frustrating. I don't like what you're doing. So easy for us to, to look and judge God that way. We had better plans, better ways. Why, God? We want for all of our external matters in our lives. We want them all ironed out. God, just fix these things. Sometimes God does fix those external matters. But He always is ready to deal with the internal matters. He's always ready to deal with the most pressing need of your heart. To open your eyes to see who He really is. Blasphemy comes as a result of not believing that God knows the real issues. God, you're working over there with these things. What I really need is you to deal with this. And you know, one of the things that God starts to show us over the course of our lives is He always knows where to be working. It doesn't mean we're always quick to not be frustrated. And it doesn't mean we're not that we're always quick to not be anxious or fearful. But he gives us the reminders again. We say, okay, God, I, I know. I know. You're dealing with the real issues rather than the peripheral things that I think are most pressing. What we need is to believe Him. There's a, a passage from the book of Hebrews that comes to my mind regularly. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He is, that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, or those who seek after Him. There is rest from our anxieties in Him. So you know what's interesting in this Back here in John chapter 10, you're in 9, go back to chapter 10. After this conversation, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They take up stones. There's this conversation. My, my works prove that I'm from the Father. Your scriptures undermine your argument. Believe, believe the works so you may know and to continue to know that the Father and I are in this union then, in verse 39, he says, see you later. Verse 9, 
uh, excuse me, verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Then he crosses over the Jordan in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at the first, and there he remained. Now what's really interesting is we have this whole thing turn full circle. You start where Jesus says back in the passage we talked about last week, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He talks about how he gives them eternal life and how the Father and he have them in his hands. I and the Father are one. The, the, the spiritual leaders are blinded spiritually. The spiritual leaders are spiritually blind. What happens when a blind person is leading another blind person? They both fall in the ditch. They're blind and they're blaspheming the one who could give them sight. Jesus departs the scene from these people that had seen his works and rejected him. Now he comes to another group of people that did not see his works. And we're going to be, to me, our mind should be blown. John doesn't like make it as, as overt as I, as, I, as, I, as I see it here. We go from blindness and blasphemy to this group of people that did not see Jesus' works and they are believing. They're believing without seeing. Look at verses 41 and 42. It says, Many came to him and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Many people come to him. You go from rejection by religious leaders. He goes across the Jordan, meets these people. They had heard through John the Baptist what Jesus was going to bring to the table. There Many come to him. We don't know what's happening in this scene. It's not recorded. Jesus is there. He's there for a while. Many come to him. And many believe even though they saw no sign. Because it doesn't take physical sight to have spiritual sight. It doesn't require physical signs for us to believe. The religious leaders had all these signs and they were blind and blasphemous. John the Baptist crowd had no signs. Their eyes were opened. And they believed. And it reminds us of a scene later on in the Gospel of John. Take a look at John chapter 20. It reminds us of another scene. This is after the resurrection. And I think we can identify with Thomas here in this setting. John chapter 20. Starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. In other words, after his resurrection, he showed himself to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And he sat that way for eight days. Eight days later, 
His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, Thomas doesn't engage. (laughs) I don't know what was going through Thomas' mind. All we have is is the record. And all we have is the very first thing Jesus does in that setting is say, Hey, Thomas, come here. Oh, you can look at that and say, I told you so. I don't think, I don't, I don't think, I don't see it that way. I see a shepherd entered that room. A shepherd entered that room and he knew the struggles going on inside Thomas's heart. And believe Thomas, come here. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. What a scene. But it's not finished until verse 29. Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I don't think this is a discrimination or a discounting of Thomas's belief. I think what Jesus is saying is, Yes, you believe. Here you are. You believe. Don't disbelieve. Blessed are those who hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They hear me. And I speak and they see the truth. They believe. You and I do not need to physically see Jesus performing miraculous signs. We need to believe what He says about who He is. He is God in the flesh in eternal union with the Father. About what He accomplished. He came to give life that we might have it abundantly. Not not more of this. This life. We like this life, right? We like to eat and drink, and go and see things, and touch things, and smell things. Most things, not everything. We like, we, like, we like this life. This life has a lot of good things to offer to us. But he's not talking about the abundance of this life. He's talking about a life that is much greater than this life. A life that even in the midst of difficulty in this temporal life, we still Feel and sense the real life that is ours in Christ. And the one that is to come. That will never be snuffed out. Will never be taken away. That will not have any of the, the same troubles and sorrows and frustrations of this life. Abundant life. He came to give life. He came to set us free. He came to give us eternal joy and peace and love in Him. 
believe? Do you believe that you need God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear? Is He able to do that? Can He do it right now? Are you willing to ask Him to keep opening your eyes and ears to Him? Will you ask Him for that now as we close? Father, thank You. Thank You for Your love for us. The awesome person and work of Jesus. His tender shepherdly care. His work as lamb to take away the sin of the world. But His work as shepherd to keep us safe and guard us. Your work of sustaining us in union with Him. Help us to believe. Help us to hear. Help us to see for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.